I'm, I'm really excited about this series. We're, we're walking through the life of Moses, and we're talking about investing in the promise. And, and, and really what we're talking about is how does God make a spiritual leader? Like, what are the components for a spiritual leader? Because there's lots of stuff written about leadership, right? We can find tons of kind of examples of management stuff. The leadership section at our bookstore is full of all kinds of stuff. Uh, but what does it take for us to become spiritual leaders? And is there a place that takes us deeper than like tactics and techniques and takes us into a place where we actually begin to experience the heart of God and become the people that he's called us to? And so we're walking through the life of Moses. We're just going to strategically walk through the book of Exodus over the coming months. Um, last week, we kind of walked up through um, chapter 4. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. If you got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 4. Verse 18 is where we're going to start today. But last week we talked about Moses' journey and his journey to this point. He has kind of three segments of his life. The first 40 years of his life are spent being trained and spent in Egypt being trained to be a leader of nations. So there's this 40 years of preparation that's happening. Then the next 40 years, the second set of 40 years, is him hiding in the desert hiding in the desert because he killed a man in Egypt, because he's wrestling with identity types of things. He was trained to be a ruler of nations, and he's working the job of a 10-year-old boy. He's an 80-year-old man hiding out in the desert. He is completely unknown, completely unseen. He is the poster child for missing your potential, right? And then the next 40 years for Moses are the years of him actually stepping into his role as a spiritual leader. So we, I want you to understand, when the burning bush shows up in Moses' life, he is an 80-year-old shepherd who is hidden in the desert for a really long time. And God still has a plan for him and still has a call for him and still is inviting him in to everything that he has for us. There is no one in this room within the sound of my voice that God has not called that God has not invited into his plans, that God has not said to you, I have a plan and a purpose for your life and I wanna invite you in. And what God says to Moses is, I've heard the cries of my people. I've heard the cries of Israel, so now go, I'm sending who? You. I'm sending you. It's the first moment in scripture where God specifically does what God does all the time, which is there is a problem in the world, there is hurting in the world, there is brokenness in the world, and rather than me just intervening, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call my people to step into the gap and to love and care and serve and go where the people of God are called. It's this beautiful thing about God that he invites us into his purposes. He invites us into his plans. He doesn't just zap things from heaven. He teaches us to bring heaven to earth. He doesn't just work from up on high. He comes here and dwells within us with the power of the Holy Spirit and teaches us to walk in his ways and walk with him, which is super fun, right? I just think like walking with God every day, there is joy in it. Like knowing that, that, that all throughout the day, God is speaking and moving and stirring and he's, he's calling me to different places and he's placing people on my heart and he's, he's inviting me to step out of my comfort zones and he's calling me to all of these different things. It's the best way to live, guys. And it's available to every single one of us. So I want to dive into this chapter today and I want to give us just kind of three things that I see in this chapter in spiritual leaders. 
These are things that all spiritual leaders do and the way that you behave and act. So Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. I also believe that these are the most pivotal passages in the whole story of Moses. We'll get to that in a little bit. Verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt and see if they're still alive. Moses has been hiding out in the desert for so long that he doesn't even know what's happening in Egypt. He doesn't know if his people are still slaves. He doesn't know what's happening in that space. There wasn't like a news channel for him to be watching to catch up on the news in Egypt. He's in this small town, hidden away. He's been hiding in the desert. He doesn't even know what's going on, but notice the language there. Let me return to what? To my people. He's beginning to find his identity. Because for Moses, the wrestling with him is, do I belong in Egypt? Am I a part of Pharaoh's people? Am I an Egyptian? Or am I an Israelite? Am I a slave people? Am I this, from this group of people? And there's this wrestling of, who do I belong to? What family do I belong to? So here, he declares really clearly, let me return to my people and see if they're there. And Jethro says, go and I wish you well. In verse 19, it says, now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all of those who wanted to kill you are dead. And so Moses has to travel back to Egypt. It's not that long of a trip from Midian to Egypt. It's long enough. I mean, it's not just a half-hour car ride. They're hopping on a camel. They're driving around. They're on the donkey. They're going. They're heading back there. He's got his whole family. He packs up everything, and he travels back to Egypt. Um, and, and the first thing that we recognize in spiritual leaders, leaders is this. Spiritual leaders follow God into the uncomfortable. They follow God into the uncomfortable. What Moses is being asked to do is to go back. Not just to go back to like his hometown. Like there's something that I love about going back to my hometown. Uh, I, I spent this week, this week my, my son broke his nose um, playing soccer in gym class. We just break bones every week, my children do. Mainly they do it on my days off just so that I don't get a day off. That's what I think, the, that's what they're doing. Um, but he broke his nose and, and so we had to go down to downtown. It took me an hour and a half to drive downtown in the middle of the day. We got downtown, we got to the doctor's office. We waited for three hours in the waiting room before we saw a doctor. We finally got in there. The doctor was in our room for two minutes maybe, and said, oh, your nose is fine, go ahead and go. Um, and I really missed small town Ohio this week. Like, I was like, oh man. I'm... And there's something about going back. There's something about going home. Like, you, there's, there's a nostalgia in the restaurants you eat in. We were talking about this the other night. Like, the food in Atlanta is 100 times better than the food in Dayton, Ohio. I can promise you. Like, those of you who've not traveled a lot to Dayton, Ohio, there's nothing good there. But there are places that I want to go to because they remind me of my childhood, because it's, they're just good, because it's like comfort food. It's what I grew up on. And so there's this joy of going home. And then there's this weird thing about going home, because home's not really home. Because all of my friends that I grew up with, they don't live there anymore. All of the people that I used to hang out with have moved and gone on to other places. Like, I show up, and there's like giant new malls and, and all these things. There's these places that I, like the mall that I grew up in is closed now and condemned and they tore it down and, and like everything is changing and transforming and, and Moses is going back and as he goes back, there's this uncomfortable thing that is happening because he's been hiding for 40 years from going back. 
Like there's a reason why he's in Midian. He's in Midian because he doesn't want to go back to Egypt. Because he doesn't want to wrestle with his past. Because he doesn't want to wrestle with his identity. Because he doesn't want to reckon with the moments that he, that he stepped into things that he shouldn't have stepped into. He doesn't want to deal with the fact that he sinned and that he was sinned against. He doesn't want to deal with that moment in his life that is the most painful moment for him to remember. And so what he's done is he stayed stuck in a moment his whole life because he doesn't want to deal with the one thing that actually needs to be healed within him. There's so many of us that live this way. We have a moment where we hurt someone or someone hurt us and it's like we're stuck in that moment. It's like that moment holds us captive. It's like it has power over us and we can't seem to get the healing and the freedom that we want from that moment because we're hiding from it. Because we're not actually stepping into the places that God has called us to. We're not actually walking into our past and allowing Jesus to guide us and take us to the place where we can actually be healed. In order for us to be healed from our brokenness, we actually have to give Jesus permission to take us there. And for many of us, that's too scary. For many of us, that's too frightening. For many of us, that walk from Midian to Egypt is too daunting, and we just refuse to take the walk. I would suggest that the greatest challenge of the American church is that we're comfortable. We're comfortable. I mean, we show up every week, we, we, we listen to our sermons, we have some music, we drink our coffee, we sit in our chairs, and, and we've just become safe in this place. We were at uh, a seminar this week, uh, our staff, and as we were there, we were with our friend Will Mancini, and he, he kind of taught us this little grid here. I'm going to draw a church, but you guys have to understand, I can't draw, right? So here's a church. Well, there's a really little cross up there so that we know it's a church, all right? Is that? Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks. Um, there's the church. And, and, and what he was talking about is, is the church in Jesus' time was radically different than the church now. So think about the church when Jesus, what was the church when Jesus was alive? Because there was the crowds that came out to see the spectacle of Jesus, Right? So there was thousands of people that would come. Over and over again, as Jesus' mission and ministry grew, they would say the crowds pressed in on him. The crowds were so large. There were so many people that they didn't have food to eat, that there were so many people that everybody couldn't get access to Jesus and couldn't get contact with Jesus. So it sounds like there were thousands of people in the crowd, but beyond the crowd, there was, there was a different level. There was, there was the disciples, there was his 12, and outside of that 12, there seems to be about 1,200 that were in the upper room. There's this kind of group of believers that weren't just there for the spectacle of Jesus, that weren't just there because there was a teacher with new authority, that weren't just there because there was somebody who was healing and they wanted to be a part of what was going on, but they were actually a part of the mission and the vision of Jesus. So they weren't just there to see something, to participate in something, to be a part of something. They were there because the mission was theirs. It wasn't just Jesus' ministry. It was their ministry as well. And those 1,200 radically shaped the world. Because by the time Constantine made the Edict of Milan in 313, which declared Christianity as the official uh, uh, religion of the government, which had all kinds of issues attached to this. Whenever we institutionalize Christianity, by the way, it doesn't go well. Right? But by the time he, in 313, he declared Christianity the national religion of Rome, half of the Roman Empire were followers of Jesus. So 1,200 
to half the Roman Empire in 300 years. And you know what happened during that time? Guess what they didn't have? They didn't have any live streams. Guess what they didn't have? They didn't have coffee every morning when they showed up for church. You know what they didn't have? They didn't have professional clergy. There were no pastors. You know what else they didn't have? Churches. There was no buildings. There was no band. There was no worship. There was no electric guitars. There was no smoke machines. We don't have those either, but some of you I know are really waiting for the day we pull out the smoke machines. Uh, there, there was none of that stuff. It was just the people of God participating in the mission and vision of God and radical breakthrough happened. I would suggest that we have become really safe and comfortable and because we've become safe and comfortable, we're not experiencing the breakthrough that the Father has for us. So what we have is we have a lower room identity. Um, a lower room is, is kind of like we're attached to the church but in the same way that the crowds were attached to Jesus. And so what we come to experience when we come to the church is, is we come for like the programs. We're just like, I, I really like the youth program, or I really like the children's program, or I really like the way that you guys do this, or the way that you do this. It's all about the program. Or, or we come because of the personalities. I like the personality of the worship leader. I like the stories that the pastor tells. I, I, I like connecting to those kinds of things. Um, sometimes it's about the people. I really just love the people here. I just like being a part of this group. I like all of these people. And sometimes, uh, maybe in other places, it's because of the place. <laughs> I just think it's an awesome building, the most incredible building. Or, or maybe it's like, it's convenient, right? It's a five-minute drive versus a 25-minute drive, or it's right here, you know, those kinds of things. And what we do is we attach ourselves to what, what Will calls a lower room identity. Because all of these things are about provision, I have a friend that says these, it's, about, it's almost like a feudal lord system in the church, right? Where the, the feudal lord provides land and provides certain things, and then there, the, the feudal system says you get to live on the land, but you have to pay your taxes. The taxes for us is, is tithing. So you tithe, and there's butts in the seat, and there's attendance, and we create this provisional relationship where everybody wants to be here because the programs are good, the personalities are good, the people are good, and the place is good. Which means that like the coffee has to be hot, but not too hot. It means that the music has to be loud, but not too loud. It means the past pastor has to be funny, but not inappropriate. It means the worship leader has to be good, but he has to also have some sort of spiritual understanding of what's happening. It's this journey. We've got to have events that are good for our kids. There's got to be three events a week for my children, but not four, because four is too many and two is not enough. And so we've got to create all of these different things that allow us to have this provisional relationship between the institution of the church and the lay people who go to the church. And all of these things happen. And, and can I just be honest with you? I, like, I would really like for our programs to be really good. Are we okay with that? I, I think I'm pretty great. <laughs> I, I like me, and I like the rest of the people on staff. I love the people in this building. Like, you guys are my family. I, I, like, I love being with you. I think our building is pretty amazing. 
I think it's a great space. Like, we have this amazing space that we've been given. We've got plans and dreams for the future. There's lots of great things here, but this doesn't get us breakthrough for the kingdom. It creates a consumer relationship with the church. So rather than being connected to the lower room, right, just coming for the spectacle of Jesus, the 1,200 weren't in it for Jesus. Um, Well, they were in it for Jesus, but they weren't in it for just showing up to hang out with Jesus. They were in it for the mission. And the upper room is not about provision. It's about vision. It's saying, I am not just here to consume. I'm actually here to participate which means it's going to be uncomfortable, which means it's going to cost me something, which means I have to do something myself. It means that I'm not just here for a provisional relationship with Jesus and with the church, but I'm all in for the mission and the vision that God has given us. Spiritual leaders step into the vision and the mission that God has given them even when it's hard. And my greatest fear for the American church is we've lost our ability to do things that are hard. It's like we're afraid. It's like we're afraid to step into the places that God's called us to. We're afraid to step into the hard areas of our community. We're afraid of what's going to go on. And when we do that, we don't have the faith that God is going to go with us. Imagine the fear from Midian to Egypt for Moses. Tons of fear. He's got to move from a provisional space where I'm just going to hang out in the desert and get my daily bread from God and get a nice tan out here and hang out with the sheep, and I'm actually going to step into the vision and the mission that God has for us. It took Moses 80 years to step into the vision and mission that God had for him, and I would suggest that that vision and mission was apparent year one. It just took him 80 years to find it. And I believe that there's people in this room who you have been searching your whole life for a mission or a vision or a dream or a plan or a hope and God has been stirring it up inside of you but you're still asking and you're still asking and God today wants to make that clear. After first service, I had a couple people come up to me and they had just notebooks full of notes and they're like, hey, I'm sorry, I stopped listening to you but here's my dream. And we say yes and amen. A thousand times yes and amen to the dreams that God has planted in you, and those are for you to pursue and for the church to help you pursue. The second thing about spiritual leaders is they deal with their past before they step into the future. This is really challenging and really difficult. Verse 20, and I believe verse 20 is the most pivotal passage in all of the journey of Moses. It's more significant than Moses standing before Pharaoh in his Charlton Heston voice and saying, let my people go. Right? It's more important than the moment when he dropped the staff in the Red Sea and the sea parted. It's more important than the moment when he brought the Ten Commandments down from the mountain. It's more important than any of these moments because if verse 20 doesn't happen, none of those other things happen. Here's what it says. So Moses took his wife and his sons and he put them on a donkey and he started back to Egypt. And he took with him the staff of God in his right hand. None of the breakthrough, none of the victory, none of the wins, none of the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God revealed to his people happen unless Moses takes that journey back to Egypt. And I can promise you that's not a journey he wanted to take. 
He was not just hiding out from getting in trouble in Egypt. He was hiding from dealing with his past. He was hiding from reckoning with that moment where he murdered someone. He was wrestling with who am I and who do I belong to. And I don't know what was more scary to him, that he would show up in Egypt and everybody would recognize him and want to arrest him, or that he would show up in Egypt and no one would recognize him. But he puts his family on the donkey and he starts that journey to dive back in to his past. I want you to imagine the doubts in his head as he travels. I want you to imagine the fears that are rolling around in his mind as he travels back to Egypt. I wonder what's going through his mind when he walks past the place where he buried the body. I wonder what's happening when he walks past the place where he was confronted with his own sin and his own brokenness and he decided to run. I wonder what happens when he walks past the river that he was placed in as a child into Pharaoh's house. As he walks this journey from Midian to Egypt, what he has to do is reckon and wrestle with his past. Spiritual leaders understand that before we step into the future that God has created for us, we have to deal with the past that is broken. We've got a a statement around here that is leaders go first. Leaders go first. They lead the way. They step out. They're the first to serve. They're the first to sacrifice. They're the first to go forward. But leaders also grow first. Leaders are the ones who grow first. They're the ones who step out and say, I'm willing to deal with my stuff. I have an honest self-assessment of where I am and where I've been. I'm willing to wrestle with what's been going on with us because he has to go back to go forward. Like Many of us don't understand the power of trauma and brokenness in our life. I've been reading a book. The book is called The Body Keeps Score. I don't know if anybody's read it. It's an amazing, really well-written book. But it it talks about how our body actually stores trauma. I don't know about you, but if, if you've ever had a moment where somebody brings up the name of somebody that you have a conflict with and you just feel something in your body, like a shock of stress or a shock of like tension or your body tightens up or your breathing gets tight, I've got some people that have really hurt me in my life, and a a few weeks ago, somebody called me, and I had to have a phone conversation about that person, and I got off the phone, and my hands were shaking, because the body actually stores trauma. Even if we don't deal with it in our mind, it is stored in our body. Even if we hide out in our desert forever, it's still there. And still needs to be dealt with. Here's what the book says. Trauma is a fact of life. Veterans and their family deal with the painful aftermath of combat. One in five Americans were molested. One in four grew up with alcoholics. One in three couples have engaged in physical violence. What trauma does is it literally reshapes both body and brain, compromising the sufferer's capacity for pleasure, engagement, self-control, and listen to the last one, and trust. Trauma actually keeps us from trusting. The body actually stores trauma unless we deal with it. So we live in a culture that is safe and comfortable, but we also live in a culture where we've all experienced some sort of trauma from the hurt and the pains of this world. And and, and right now in our culture, particularly in the church, mental health has a stigma with it. Are you with me? 
It has a stigma that that's something you keep to yourself, that that's something you don't share openly, that that's something we don't talk about. It's not something that we deal with. It's not something that we wrestle with. It's something that you have to hide and deal with it. My wife has wrestled with anxiety her entire life, and I can't tell you how many times well-intentioned Christians have told her she just doesn't pray enough. I can't tell you how many times well-intentioned Christians told her she doesn't have enough faith. I've got a friend, an acquaintance actually, a pastor this week, 30-year-old pastor, committed suicide. He's a writer, he was an incredible teacher, incredible speaker, he and I had met a couple different times and he had been wrestling with mental health and been wrestling with suicidal thoughts and been wrestling with depression and battling all of this, these different things and his final, one of his final tweets is this, he said, loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure depression. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure trauma. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure anxiety, but that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't offer us companionship and comfort. He always does that. But there was something going on in his life where he didn't have somebody that he could share that with. His past kept him from stepping into the future that God had called him to. And he could not wrestle with it and reckon with it. And he didn't have anybody to stand beside him because we, for some reason, believe that mental health is the thing that we can't talk about in the church. And I just want to ask, can we not be that church? Like, can we be a place where we treat mental health issues in the exact same way that we treat physical health issues, where we say, yes, there is a spiritual side to this, but there's also a hereditary side, there's a medical side, there's a chemical side, there's a physical side, there's an emotional side, and we want to deal with all parts of our wholeness and our wellness, not just the spiritual side of our wellness. Like I, just, I want to be honest with you guys about my mental health journey. I take depression meds. We okay with that? I've done that for a long time. It runs in my family. It helps me to become more healthy. There was a long period of my life where I was ashamed of it, and I didn't do it, and I didn't want to do it, and I didn't want to talk to a doctor about it, and I didn't want to talk to a counselor about it because I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to have this stuff figured out. And can I tell you how much healing took place when I just stepped out and said, no, I need medicine. Everyone else in my family takes medicine. This is helpful for them. I'm not ashamed of that in any way. Like, I want to become the type of leader that can lead this church, and if I don't go back and deal with my past, if I don't deal with family history, if I don't deal with depression, if I don't deal with my own brokenness, I can't become the leader that God has called me to. Can I tell you that my wife and I have been to marriage counseling? I know that might shock all of you. We have. If you hang out with us, you'll understand why, right? Like, we, we have, and it's a great thing. Like, couples, if you're struggling to communicate, if you're struggling to talk, if you're struggling to get well in your marriage, go see somebody. Go talk to somebody. Go spend some time with somebody. Invest in your relationship by doing something that takes some courage to step out into. Like, I would encourage everybody in the room who's married to go see a counselor. Marriage is hard. Especially if you're going to stay together for a long time. We're going on 20 years now. And I plan on doing the next 20 and the next 20 after that. And, and, and in order for us to do that, we've got to get well and we've got to remove this stigma that says we can't talk about these things. 
When Moses got on that donkey and went back from Midian to Egypt, he had to wrestle with his past. This is so significant. He had to wrestle and battle with his own brokenness, with his own hurt, and he had to step into the place that God has called him to. And you know what that's called? It's called discipleship. Discipleship is putting away the patterns of your old family and stepping into your new family, which is the family of God, and becoming the person that he's called you to be. It's stepping away from being an old creation into being a new creation. It's stepping away from the patterns of brokenness and woundedness and hurts that we have stored up in our body and becoming healed and becoming free and becoming restored by the power and the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus. And there is somebody in this room right now and you're thinking, my past is too broken. What happened to me was too bad. I can never be healed. I can never be set free. That will always hold me captive. Or you're saying, what I did myself uh, was too bad. It can never be forgiven. There's not enough grace for it. I have to live in this desert of hiding. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ is standing right here today saying, come on, let's get healed. Let's get set free. Let's step forward. Let's name it for what it is. Let's call it out to your family and let's get you help so that you can become healed. That's what discipleship is. It's becoming the person Jesus would be if he were you. And the person that Jesus would be if he were you is a person that is healed, is a person that is free, is a person that walks in power and authority and strength because he's good and he wants the best for you. Number three, I'm getting fired up. Spiritual leaders trust the power of God more than they trust the power of self. They trust in the power of God more than they trust the power of themselves. I, I, I'm struck by the fact that that passage on, um, on trauma says it, it doesn't allow us to trust. So if we've experienced trauma, if we've stored up trauma, it's not only hurting our relationships with one another where we don't want to trust one another, it actually damages our relationship with the Father. We actually start to believe that we can't trust that God will set us free, that we can't trust that he's good, And so what we do is we strive and we work and we fight to try and accomplish the work that God wants to do in us. And we try and do it in our own strength and in our own power when there's healing that's available to us. There's this amazing passage in scripture where Jesus is walking around the Tower of Siloam. The Tower of Siloam is this kind of fountain that sits in the middle of a colonnade. And in this fountain, there was this belief, because what would happen is occasionally the fountain would bubble up. There'd just be these random bubbles that would bubble up in the fountain. And I don't know what was going on. Maybe there was something beneath the surface of the ground that made it bubbled. Maybe somebody put some bubbles in there. I don't know what was going on with the bubbles, but everybody was amazed that this thing would bubble up. And so people started to believe that in this fountain, there is healing, and so everybody would gather around the fountain and wait, and, and there, there were like people who were, like couldn't walk, and, and people who were crippled, and all these different things who would just wait around the fountain, and the moment the fountain would bubble, they would all race to get in the fountain, believing that healing was present in the fountain. And Jesus shows up. And I just imagine Jesus walking around that fountain. I imagine him stepping over top of people that are in need of healing. I imagine him walking through the crowd 
of people who are not choosing to, to, who are waiting, watching, like, intent to pay attention to this fountain. And he finds one man, and he says, what are you doing? And the man says, I can't get to the fountain. And Jesus says, you don't need the fountain, you need me. I just wonder if all of us are looking for bubbles somewhere, and the healer is right here. I wonder if all of us are just walking around the fountain, just waiting for the great physician to show up and heal and free and restore and take care of the brokenness from our past or the woundedness we've experienced when Jesus is walking through the crowd. The great physician, the great healer is right there ready to touch you and heal you, set you free. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think there's times when God just steps in and he just instantly heals. Like I've seen it happen over and over again where something amazing happens and God just takes something away or God just heals something that's broken. And sometimes he heals over time. Sometimes he'll heal our heart instantly. Sometimes he'll heal our body instantly. And sometimes he heals it over time. Sometimes he uses doctors. Sometimes he uses prayer. Sometimes he uses medicine. Sometimes he uses prayer. I don't know how God works, but I know that he's good. And I know that he's ready, and I know that he wants us to become alive in him, and I know he wants us to become the spiritual leaders that he's called us to. And so we're going to wrap up the service, and as we do for this series, we've just decided that every single week, we're just going to open up space up front here on the carpet and on the steps for us just to pray. Uh, And today, I, I just really get a sense that there's some people in the room that the Father wants to heal. That he wants you just to come forward and say, you know what, God, I've been hiding out in Midian, and I've been not dealing with my brokenness or woundedness. I've been pretending that it doesn't exist, and I'm going to put my family on the donkey, and I'm going to head back to Egypt. I'm actually going to make a decision to start dealing with this. And it starts by bringing it out into the light. Scripture says when, everything, when something is in the dark, it's hidden, but when, it, when we bring it out into the light, that's when it can be dealt with. And so all healing begins with the first step. All healing begins with us stepping into the things that God has called us to. It begins with confession. It begins with repentance. It begins with God's grace. And I believe that God's grace is abundant this morning. I believe it's all over this room. We've been praying for it all morning, that there is power, that there is grace, that there is mercy, and there is healing in this room. There is victory, and there is breakthrough. There is yes and amens that are available to every single one of us in the room today. But I also think there's power in taking a step towards that. There's power in actually naming it. There's power in actually saying it. There's power in actually walking to the front and bowing on your knees and saying, Lord Jesus, I need you. And so we're going to move into a time of communion. There's communion stations in the front and in the back. It's always an opportunity for us to remember the length that Jesus went to love us. Like, why would he go to the cross and die for us if he doesn't want to meet us in our brokenness? Why would God give the life of his son if he doesn't care about our status and our status right now? 
And so we go to the table remembering the goodness of God, remembering the mercy of God, remembering that he will go to any length to show his love for us. And we come to the front to say, Lord, I want healing. I want victory. I want breakthrough. I want something new in my life. And if you come forward and just raise your hand, somebody's going to come and pray with you. If you want to pray alone, just sit. But if you want somebody to pray with you, raise your hand. And we've got prayer leaders who would love to come and pray with you. But we're going to worship together. We're going to wrap up the day actually doing what we've been talking about, which is going to the Lord. Like Egypt is really scary, guys. And it's really hard. And I don't want to minimize what's happened in anybody's past. But I believe the power of God is greater than our fears. I believe the power of God is greater than our tendency to stay back and play it safe. And so, Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would stir it up in this room right now. I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us to search our hearts and know us. Lead us to the places of our life where we're still broken and wounded and we've been afraid to deal with it or wrestle with it. And I pray that you would begin the healing process today. I pray that you would begin the process of freedom and of breakthrough and of victory. And so for, for people in the room who have been wrestling with the same sin for year after year, I pray that today you would begin healing. For people who have a moment in their life where they were abused or, or, or used or mistreated and it hurts them and they're wounded and stuck in this moment of trauma, I pray that you would give them breakthrough from that moment, give them healing from that moment today. And for those of us who blew it in an incredible way and we just carry the shame and the guilt of that moment, I pray that you would set us free from shame and guilt and remember that you call 80-year-old shepherds and you can call us. And so I pray right now, we just submit and surrender this time to you, and I pray, Holy Spirit, in the power of your name, that you would move and work in this place, that you would have your way with us. We thank you that you're good. We thank you that you're calling us, and we thank you that we meet us where we are. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Let's move into a time of worship and a prayer.